Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. I got to see one of your short videos that you were taking photograph of this young girl. And I must have watched it six or seven times. <laughs> the instruction that you were given was so automatic. The energy that you were exchanging with her and she was picking your energy and getting more and more into the zone of your energy, I began to watch how that energy is transforming into me as well mm. as the audience, mm. not on a live stage act, mm. in a little video thing. And I got in that energy, <laughs> in that same energy, and I began to feel this connection with the inner self that you were talking about. You know, there's so many things for us to watch and there's so many messages all over the place that we're just like a child on a Christmas morning, too many toys. Mm -hmm. And we have no idea where to go and what to do. Last year, one of my students came here and we had a discussion. I asked her about her new paintings. And she said that, uh, hmm, I have a creativity block. And that's why I'm here, to ask you to remove that block. Mm. They called me Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said creativity blog, not creativity block. <laughs> and I was like, I want you to remove me from this creativity blog. <laughs> No, that's too advanced for me. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Great, what happened? I said, okay, I want you to go and paint six paintings to burn. Six paintings to burn. And she said, well, can I keep the ones that I like? I said, no, start with burning the ones you like first. <laughs> and she did that. Yes. And now, within a year, she has changed from where art was just a side thing for her to now that art has become her profession. Wow. Just burning six paintings. Because when you begin to paint for burning, there's a different emotion. So different that you paint for somebody to see or a critic to criticize or somebody to buy. So this burning gives you that freedom that, hey, this is just for nothing. Hafez says, Benishin bar labiju yo guzare omr bibin vin esharat ze jahane guzaron marabas Sit by the river and watch the flow 
of the water. That metaphor is enough for you about the flowing life to know. Hmm. As we recognize that there is no attachment, we begin to appreciate. It's like going to a beautiful city for the first time. In one day, we see so much that we have not seen in our own hometown for a lifetime. Because we know that it's going to go away. So we want to really take it in. And that taking it in is what an artist needs. Mm -hmm. Don't go after putting out. It'll come out by itself. Just fill in. It pulls out. And when it pulls out, just pulls out wherever it feels like it. As you're talking about Hafez on the riverbank, watching this flow go by, it's interesting, I think, to note that exactly as much comes in to his frame as leaves every single time, every single moment. There's a certain amount of water coming into what he can see, that part of the river, the exact same amount goes out. The balance between those two things is obviously directly connected to flow because the second that there's even a tiny imbalance in how much is being received and how much is being expressed, at the moment that the imbalance is created, it begins a journey of reaching obstacle point every single time, even, even a small difference between those two things. And so mastery as an artist, especially over the long term, has to be really connected to being in this place of building your awareness over long periods of times, noticing when you're starting to have that flow reduced which means if you follow that trail back, there will be a point somewhere, maybe recently, maybe a while back, where you got out of balance with that giving and receiving. And beautifully, just like in the same metaphor of rivers, it has to be one of my favorite things that I know about life is that water behind a dam can be stuck for 30, 40, 50 years. But the second that the dam is removed, it doesn't take 30, 40, 50 years to come out. It's just instant. This is what is so exciting for the creative people who have been blocked. Yes. And I say, wow, see, you have not lost your creative power because no. that's a flow. Yeah. You cannot lose the flow of the universe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> In that flow that you are, you lose yourself. In that flow, you become surrendered. When you become surrendered, your longing develops your love, your attention. You become a lover without a beloved. Mm. And the moment you become a lover without a beloved, then you're in love. You attract the beloved from all directions at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So it's like performer. It's that moment that you're on the stage and that stage is a nubula somewhere and you want to express who you are from within. Hoover Dam gives us the electricity of Southern California and parts of Nevada. Aside from irrigation power, that's just the energy which was behind that dam and built up more and more and more and more and more. That same girl who burned six of her paintings 
After that, there was a new energy. It was a power. It wasn't a learning process anymore. It had gone beyond that. She did not mean to tell her anything anymore. She was on her way. <laughs> gone. See, it was the longing that I wanted to develop in her because I could not remove the block. I cannot even remove a block in front of myself, let alone from somebody else. But I could get her in that powerful energy, the only powerful energy that can remove the block is faith, which love is even a part of it. So you've got to have full faith in the capability that you can remove that block. And in order for you to have the full faith, you have to have a longing that would burn you from inside. You know what I'm hearing really strongly in this conversation as a thread? Something I've been thinking about recently, which is taking things personal. When we take things personally, they become these really big dangers to breaking that flow. Usually when people think about taking things personally, they're talking about in a negative sense. Oh, somebody said this thing and it really hurt my feelings. And that is one way to take things personally. But you can also take the positive things that you've done personally and you can think, oh, I'm great or I did this one time or that was my height or that was my glory. Either way, really, it actually has a lot in common, which is just that you now create this fixed shape of energy that has a really big chance of stealing the power of that flow. So this taking personally thing that happens, I think is really at the root of probably all creative block, or at least one of the hugest culprits of creative blocks. Because there's that thing too, where this painter painted for so long, and they probably had successes, and then all of a sudden they didn't. And a part of that can come sometimes because the mind goes, oh no, like what if I don't paint something as good as what I painted last week? Creative block. So when you talk about faith, what I'm hearing is that there needs to be this full dive into knowing that it's okay to let go of that water that's in your hand right now. It's okay to let go of that water that's in your vision because the second that you let it go, there's just as much more behind it, that that river is infinite. I take it even stiffer there. Not just only it's okay to get rid of it. Exactly. So you can receive something exactly. else. Exactly. But if I want to hang on to it, my closet begins to get filled. Exactly. And so you look at the realm of what we would call personal. Every single thing that I can think of right now that I would take personally is basically another way to say attachment. One of my practices as a Sufi was I had a notebook with me regularly and I would take a note of what pissed me off and how long it took me to get back to being normal self. For a whole month, I had to do that. I was to study the problem that I was facing and how long did it take to get rid of the impact that it had left on me. I began to recognize to be a good human is to shorten that distance. Exactly. That you need to get back to where yep. you are supposed to be. Now, if somebody gives me a finger on the freeway and I'm going to be pissed for two hours, I'd much rather communicate with a cat than with you. 
But, you know, if you have the capability, okay, that was, you know, the guy had some problem with his finger or whatever it was, <laughs> and move on. What you're talking about, which I love, about the whole matter of bringing personal things into it, we have no escape from it. Ego is there, and there is no escape from it. Something goes wrong in my flow, and I'm going to get annoyed. But how soon I can get back exactly. gets me that capability to continue being in the flow. But if that thing just threw me off the flow, I'm miserable. And you build these things up, yes. and then I'm 45 years old, yeah. and I'm lost. Yeah. I have no idea what to do in my life. I think the danger, too, is that these moments can be so small that we think just a random one isn't that important. But by accumulation, they really start to build up. I'm kind of seeing visually in my head as you're speaking this guy fingering you on the, on the highway. And then like these, this two hours afterwards that we could just call uh, stuck hours. And maybe somebody calls you and says, why didn't you get that thing here on time? You were supposed to do that. And for the next five, ten minutes, as you're working away, you're thinking, they're not nice to me, they're blah, 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 you know, blah, blah. There'll be like ten stuck minutes. And if you started thinking of all of the stuck moments and minutes and hours and days and years that would start accumulating in somebody's life, if left alone, would get worse and worse and worse throughout a life, in the same way that there's a clear river, and then all of a sudden, a branch comes by from a storm, and it gets kind of stuck. And then another branch comes by and it gets stuck on that branch. And over time, that whole pure, beautiful river could just get kind of down to a little trickle because one thing keeps on piling on the next. To actively hunt out those moments, like you say, and maybe even think of them as like blocks of ice or something like that, which it is the river, but it's just been frozen. It's been slowed down until now it's a big chunk of this thing. And to go back to all of those and just pour that energy of release into them, quicken them, put that heat in there, and then they melt, and then we're returned back to this flow. It could almost be said that one of the most important jobs of an artist, of a human, of a creative, is to actively hunt down those places where they feel stuck, the places of things that they take personally and say, here is your chief job as an artist. Don't worry about what to make. Don't worry about what to create. There's an infinite amount of that. Your main job is to figure out what keeps you from creating and destroy that. Let go of that, abandon that. And in the space of that, so much can come through. thinking about a student of yours who came to you, asked the blockbuster to help her get rid of that block, and then she did, and then as she did, you were like, she's beyond teaching now, she's just on her own flow. I think, to me, that is one of the most profound needs that the world really has, is, is not to be taught so much as to be given the tools to help themselves understand how to get unstuck from all the places that they are. You don't see other flowers, you don't see successful flowers talking to other flowers being like, come on, Jimmy, you can do it. Just three more leaves over there, four more petals, and you too can be like me. There's that whole idea of teaching that humans have, which has some elements for sure. 
I think can really start to go into this stuck place. Because even like with religions, the deeper purpose of all of the truly spiritual teachings were about giving people tools to help make them lighter, to help make them more free. You know, it's one of my favorite things that Jesus is ever quoted as saying is, here's how you know if it's true, because it sets you free. That's the indicator. And if it doesn't set you free, it's not true. Because sometimes somebody can be holding something that's true, but not being able to connect or see that it's true, not be able to embody the truth of it. All of that stuff that collects in the river that dams it up, even good things can dam up that river, quote-unquote good things. People can, can memorize all the words of some good person. They can copy every single picture of some good artist. And even those things can be used to stop the creative flow. Actually, that is what stops the creative flow. You only collect good stuff. You don't collect bad stuff. If this is bad, I'm not going to collect it. If it's a good, I'm going to add it to my closet because it's good. Those goods that are the blocks mm. for our flow, not the bads. The bads we don't collect. She painted six paintings for burning. That began to teach her that when you create, don't create for a reason. You just create to burn. The last book that is going to be published among my books is Notes for a Trash Can. <laughs> and the reason that I don't want to publish it yet is because my trash can is not filled yet. So I'm just adding more you know, notes in my trash can. When I write note to my trash can, it's me. <laughs> wow. My trash can doesn't care. So fascinating. And I mean, I really think we're hitting on one of these subtle underlying issues that so many of us face, not just people who call ourselves creatives, but two things come strongly to me right now. One is the whole image of a horse gallop is like one of those things like watching birds fly that just connects really deeply with the human psyche. We just love this idea of this horse slow motion galloping. It's a shot in so many movies. And it's beautiful. You know, you watch the rippling muscles. You watch that mane going back, being caught up in the wind, rearing up on the two, all of that. It's, it's, it's a powerful thing. As I was thinking of what you were saying about you're creating to destroy, you're not creating for a reason. I was thinking how much less beautiful that horse would be if every single movement of his head, he would be like, this one's really going to get them. You know, <laughs> This time when I neigh, I'm going to do a little bit of a deeper neigh so that the horses around are like, well, Jonathan, that was a really nice neigh that you had there that last time. It's complete surrender. It's complete dive in. And there's just something so compelling about when any animal or human or being just totally pours themselves in. It's the hawk diving for the prey. That moment where they're circling, circling, and then they've committed. They've committed to that dive. And it's a fascinating dive whether or not they catch the prey. It's almost not even about that. It's just that moment of, of pouring in, I think, is so vital to what the creative process actually is. As we're doing creative things in our life, the flow is what we try to get into. Flow of nature, not the flow of my mind. That energy that I get out of the flowers that are always around me, I get the scent of them. I touch them. Two of my senses are being used. And I'm listening to music, which is my third sense. 
and I'm sipping on the tea that is next to me. That whole world that I have now is bringing my five senses together. As I'm working with my five senses, I am in the flow. But if one of my senses is not in the flow, I'm not in the flow. If I'm smelling something terrible, <laughs> or I'm hearing some noise or whatever, mm. I'm not in the flow anymore. So we need to bring these five senses together in order to benefit being in the flow. But I don't care how great of the spiritual being you are, if your external senses are not in coordination with your internal senses, you fall out of the flow quickly. That's when a finger on the freeway has an impact of two hours on you. Mm. As we're getting into the zone of creating our life to get to the next step that we need, we have to watch out not to get caught. I think that finger on the freeway is actually a really important metaphor to explore because if a baby was looking through the window at a passerby and some guy flipped off the baby, the baby wouldn't even recognize it. The baby would certainly not spend two hours thinking, why did that guy do that to me? She might even enjoy it. She might even enjoy it. That's exactly right. So what's important, I think, to be aware of there is that it, it's not the finger that makes you feel bad. It's you have an understanding or an idea that you picked up at some point of what that means and that it's somehow negative about you and you've probably had other experiences in the past where something negative about you happened and it starts going into this little bit of a avalanche of all of these things coalescing at once. I know personally from my own experience, one bad thing can happen during a day or one sad thing and then I can find my mind, particularly in the past, going to a place of like, nothing ever works out, right? It's always like this, no one is ever, and just going to this place that's completely irrational there are so many things going right for your body at any one given moment that it's always mathematically incorrect to say that you've had a bad day. It always is. When you think about there's 37.2 trillion cells, and even if you have a horrible sickness or something like that, it's only a tiny, tiny percentage of those cells that aren't going right. Five things happen in a day that weren't the things that you wanted. That's enough for most of us to say, ah, oh, it was a horrible day. But if we really started counting all the amazing things that happened, such as I breathed, and then I breathed again, and then I kept doing that like 5,000 times that day, all of that stuff stacks up. So what I'm trying to say is that there is this over-focus, over-emphasis on these negative things that happen sometimes, what it means to get flipped off by somebody on a highway, that ends up getting us stuck we get stuck in the avalanche of what that means. But I think the most powerful part of it to realize is that that stuckness doesn't come from the event. That stuckness comes from an association that we carry in our own heads, in our own minds about what that means. And that's important to recognize because that means we can be free of it. That means we can destroy it. That means we can let it go. It's something we have to practice, but it's definitely, I think, probably one of the most important things for an artist to practice. Just as you said, notice what is getting you stuck. What is getting you stuck and what do you need to do to release it? And for me, the coolest part of all of that is 
who you become, how that changes you as you learn to release yeah. those kinds of things. The idea of practice that you're talking about, which is absolutely necessary to be in the flow, you need to build up a rhythm so you can adjust yourself to the flow. Because the moment I enter the river, I get stuck to the edge because I have no rhythm to get adjusted to what's going on in there. It's interesting. How do you physically get into the flow. Let's just take a tour in Paris. If I begin the tour by just seeing the roses that I see through this tour that I'm taking, I'm interested in finding the roses because I like that or whatever statues, whatever is attractive for you. Now your eyes begin to adjust into the flow through your finding a rhythm of seeing the beauty that you're looking for. Same thing with your hearing. As I'm going through this tour, I want to hear the sound of the city. And as you hear the sound of the city and certain things that attract you in the sound of the city, your ear becomes adjusted to that flow. Same thing happens with sense of smell, with other senses. So what you're talking about, that senses would actually help you to get into the flow by utilizing them rather than ignoring them. I've got the sense to use. There is a very real, tangible, somatic experience that can sometimes even uh, tell you clearly where you're at before you've even rationalized it in your own brain. And I think our rational world we've created that is very, very weighted towards conscious thought has, in many ways, for all of its gifts, really torn us from this more elemental, primal, visceral awareness and experience of, of what the world is. A lot of the old stories, the old cultural traditions and religious traditions, they weren't trying to be scientific explorations of what the world was. They weren't trying to get it accurate. That was never the point of it. They were trying to make it feel resonant. It was much more about the body. And I think that that is not something to be discounted. That is something that in this day and age, we need to merge the beauty of the rational thinking and the beauty of the, the safe societies and structures that that's given us, but bring back that wild primal element of what it means to really be alive. For instance, rational thought has been a part of what has contributed to the lowest infant mortality rates of all time. It used to be very common for a child to die in childbirth and fairly common for a mother to pass away. And science and rational thought has changed that. We're saving all of these babies, but we're raising them in prisons. Have we really won? Have we really gained something? So the babies that did make it back then, at least when they did make it, they were pretty guaranteed to have a life where their body was very important, where they experienced a lot. I was reading this amazing guy named Yuval Harari, who's one of my heroes. He was talking about how what we would call cavemen and women from a long time ago they were so superior to us individually in almost every single way because 
they had to be so good at so many things just to survive. And they spent their entire day from waking to resting, learning these survival skills. They knew how to make tools. They knew how to climb trees. They knew how to hunt a cheetah. They knew how to mix these herbs. Every individual one had to know all of those things because they couldn't rely on some expert doctor flying in from New York who's trained their whole life on this one specific speciality. So even though we've become more sophisticated as a whole, we've actually become kind of desophisticated in a certain sense as individuals. And I think that's a part of what this internal struggle that a lot of us are facing is. It's like, where's my place? What's my place in this whole system? What is it that I can contribute? And I think a big part of that is that the body doesn't feel involved. If you can compare a body today, what a body just normally does in North America in 24 hours, there's a heck of a lot of couch sitting, a lot of driving, holding a large wheel. <laughs> there's a heck of a lot of moving very slowly, if at all. And there's a heck of a lot of wondering, like, why some passerby you don't even know fingered you. <laughs> there's such a sedentary, disconnected feeling from the body that is so different than how our bodies grew for millions and millions of years and thrived that way. Bringing all of this back, I think, going for me back to that story of, of the hawk diving, you can see the way the body changes in that moment. The wings were out, there was a very wide stance, then all of a sudden, the wings go back, beak goes down, and straight down. And same thing with the horse. It's very clear that certain forms of moving the body lend themselves to these creative dives. The most fascinating movement, being in the flow for me, is the way cat lands, mm. all cats. The only animal that I have learned so far that can turn the upper part and the lower part in two different directions mm. at the same time in order to land properly. Mm. No other animal can do that. Still, they move shift in one direction, but not being able to turn it into two opposite directions. And it's fascinating how nature develops that power in us because we live in these large metropolitan areas or social areas, we forget about all those advantages that is around us, that is useful for our bodies. Sometimes I wonder if the early men had the medical capability that we have now, how long would they have lived? Because the way they lived... Yes. Their life was short because they were eaten by other animals right. for whatever reason. You know, they were getting killed like that yeah. or in childbirth, as you said. But imagine if they didn't have those problems that we don't, but living in the nature like they did, living the way a tree lives, the way a plant lives. I think that is really what at least even if we don't have it available to us, it's necessary for us to experience it. The connection of the body with it. As we develop our interest toward picking the things that relates to us, not to fill our storage with just whatever attracts us. 
to feel those things that is really connecting with my love, my emotion, like that scent of the roses. There's no escape from it. As I start collecting these scents, by the time I've taken the tour of the city, I could easily become a perfumer. The senses can either be used almost as like watchdogs for the survival mechanism in the brain, and then they can also be used for the purpose of creativity. And if you look at any single creative act that has ever been done, it always has to do with the senses. Painting, obviously, is about the visual sense. Emotion, music, yeah. Yeah, music yeah. is about the audio sense, you know, and so... It's almost like maybe developing and paying attention to how are my senses being used in this moment can actually be a really beautiful way to practically merge these two kind of concepts. This stuckness that we have, why are we stuck? Probably because if our body is being used at all, it's being used as a survival mechanism. Why am I hunched over? When you hunch over like that and your shoulders go down, it's actually an ancient protective mechanism because all your vital organs are up here in the front. And so when you're hunched over like that, which we do when we're really upset or sad or scared, it's because basically the body is saying, I might die. I feel very vulnerable right now. I might, I might be in physical danger. And when your body is in that kind of state, all you can think about is survival and you're completely cut off from the current beauty that's happening there. And I think it's a really kind of interesting thing I'm going to be exploring now more that we've just talked about this is these senses that I have, this body that I have, is it being used for survival right now? Is it being used to protect me mostly against phantoms? Or is it intricately and vitally, exploratively in touch with what's happening here now? Because they can be used for both things, which is really interesting. It can be used for both. The second that that switch is made, as you just described, now I'm using my senses for smelling these things. I could become a perfumer. And it's funny that you said that because I was thinking about that exact thing. I ran across this amazing new perfumery recently, and there were just these stunning mixes of all of these beautiful smells. And they were from very different places. They did not grow from the same <laughs> flower or something. There was this mix. And as I was researching that, I thought, what a journey that those people have gone on. What an interesting trek to have made. And how many things would you have had to have smelled to come up with this very <laughs> tiny little percentage there? When you talk about faith, anytime I hear words like that, I want to break them apart. I want to understand what they mean because I've heard words like that and I want to know in my body, what does that mean? And for me, my developing understanding of that is that faith is knowing that as the water leaves, the new water comes. Faith is knowing that you're going to have to smell a million things and a lot of them aren't going to be pretty so that you can find seven or eight. Faith is just in understanding and in awareness of that part of the process. Faith to me is also that there are seven beautiful things somewhere out there. If you're willing to go through the work that it takes to do that, they are there. The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Niklas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, 
we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community 